Acts chapter 2. So we last looked at this text now a whole month ago. Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost explaining what just happened. Peter's sermon has two points, essentially. The first point is that this is what Joel prophesied. And that goes through verse 16. And then, after finishing, uh, basically saying this is what Joel prophesied, and then quoting Joel's prophecy, Peter pivots to his next topic. Men of Israel, Jesus of Nazareth. Now we talked last time, on February 14th, about the relationship between the two points of this sermon. How does Peter get from the pouring out of the Spirit, a relatively standard interpretation of Joel 2, to Jesus of Nazareth? It appears that he just says, this is the Spirit, now I'm going to talk about what I want to talk about, Jesus of Nazareth. But the connection is actually much deeper than that. The connection lies in the being of God. If you'll notice, the first point of the of this sermon is about the Father and the Spirit. God kept His promise to pour out His Spirit. But the missing element in that, if we have the Father and the Spirit, who's not there? Well, Jesus is missing from that picture, and so Peter brings Him in and says, the reason the Father poured out the Spirit is because Jesus. This is a Christ-centered Trinitarian sermon. The Spirit came. You all saw the Spirit come. We need to understand why the Spirit came. He was prophesied. God said He would pour Him out. How was God able to do this? Well, God did this because of what Jesus of Nazareth did as a man among you here on earth. So Peter summarizes the career of Jesus, His nature, His death, His resurrection, His ascension, and ties that back to the Father's promise to pour out the Spirit. Acts chapter 2, starting at verse 14. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. These are not drunk as you suppose. It's only the third hour of the day. This is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out of my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above, signs in the earth beneath, blood, fire, vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, the moon into blood, before the coming of the great and notable day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined counsel and foreknowledge of God, You have taken by lawless hands, have crucified, and put to death. Whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. 
For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face. For he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh will also rest in hope. Because you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Men, brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David. And he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne... He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, But he says himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father, help us to listen to this sermon, the first sermon of the church as we know it. Father, help us to see the glorious career of your Son, his nature, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his fulfillment of prophecy, his status as the heir of David, to whom the promises to David were made and in whom they were fulfilled. Lord, give us concentration of mind and openness of heart to understand your word and to live in light of it. Open the scriptures to us. Let us heed the apostolic message to know Jesus' status, that he is Lord in Christ, and to know our guilt that we crucified him. Help us, Father, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Peter made his first point. Spirit came. Joel prophesied this. He pivots now to his second point. This was the work of Jesus of Nazareth. The Spirit came to Israel from Jesus because of what Jesus did on earth, his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. That's the primal, the primordial, the original gospel proclamation. And that is what should still be proclaimed in the church as the good news about Jesus. Peter starts with the nature of Jesus. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man. He starts with the human nature of Christ. We have here a man named Jesus from a particular city 
And the first thing we need to know about him is that he was, in fact, a man. There was no uncanny valley there. There was no, well, this is a very convincing robot, a very clever imitation. This is somebody who is agonizingly similar to humanity. No, he was a man, right? When Jesus calms the storm, the disciples don't marvel and say, I am stunned that God has all the power I always thought he had. Jesus didn't present as God or a divine being. He was, but he was also fully one of us. And to see him walking down the street, you would say, that's a man. Peter starts there. The humanity of Christ is essential to the gospel. There is no descent of the Spirit without Jesus of Nazareth, a man. That's why Peter moves directly from the descent of the Spirit to the manhood of Christ. The disciples said, what kind of man is this? And now, three years later, Peter is saying, now I know what kind of man he is. Let me tell you, he was a man publicly endorsed by God. A man attested by God to you. Now, there are all kinds of credentialings that our world indulges in. I was going through the archives last night for the sake of my AP Lit students to find a paper for them, and I found from the spring semester of 2010, Caleb Nelson is officially a member of Who's Who among students in American colleges and universities. Ridiculous. But, there it is. One of the world's credentials. I can show you that 11 years ago I was in Who's Who. Well, there are many credentials in this world, but the credentialing of Jesus of Nazareth is totally unique. He was attested, endorsed, accredited, affirmed by God himself. When this church set out to hire me as a pastor, I was not able to provide you an endorsement from the Almighty. There was no paper written on heaven's official letterhead with God saying, yes, I approve of this one. But Jesus had that. The voice speaking from the sky saying, this is him. I can find you millions of men who will endorse God for every single man that God will endorse. But God endorsed this one. Not with a letter of reference on heaven's official letterhead. We don't know what heaven's letterhead looks like. God gave him better credentials than that. His credentialing was through wonder-working powers. A man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him. How do we know that God endorsed Jesus of Nazareth? The healings. The feedings of the 5,000. The getting away from the Pharisees when they wanted to kill him. All the different miracles that he did said loudly 
God approves of this one. The greatest of them all being, of course, the resurrection, which Peter's going to get to in a minute. That miracle shows definitively this one is endorsed by God. This is God's lawful representative right here on earth. Jesus showed those credentials, and Peter then, as a good preacher, brings it back to his audience, which you also know. You saw Jesus of Nazareth. He was known in this city. He lived and ministered here for three years. Peter's audience knows this. So Peter says, here's the nature of Jesus. And he moves quickly then to his death. Next verse. Him being delivered by the determined counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and slain. We have a whole sermon on this in a couple of weeks. But for now we'll say that it was God's plan, it was their action. Peter puts those two things side by side in this verse. Again, connecting it to his hearers. You delivered Jesus to death. Here's his nature. He was a man. Here's what you did. You crucified him. And then he moves on immediately to the resurrection. The longest part of his sermon. The core of the sermon. Because up to this point, things are rare, but not unprecedented. There have been a number of people throughout history endorsed by God. Most notably, of course, Moses and the other prophets. They spoke for God. They went around doing miracles. They had had that leadership role in the covenant community. But when he pivots to the resurrection, Peter is going into uncharted territory. Now, we're not just talking about a great prophet. We're talking about somebody who is qualitatively of another order. God has certified people before, especially Moses. Good men have been put to death before. Only too true. But here's the difference with Jesus of Nazareth. God raised him up. Yes, some people have even been raised from the dead before in the pages of the Bible, but nobody has been raised permanently. This was not a resurrection that postpones death for a few weeks or months or years. This was a resurrection that utterly transcends and annihilates death. Christ is raised in such a way that he will never die his life is indestructible. So this is the new part of Peter's message. And that's why the resurrection gets the lion's share of what he has to say. What are his points about the resurrection? Well, first of all, it was accomplished by God's power. God raised him up. Jesus didn't raise himself, per se, with some kind of occult or demonic or magical power. No, this is something that God did. All right. Peter's audience are good Jews. They believe that God's power is active in nature. I eat food. The food sustains me because God makes it sustain me. I catch a fish. I caught that fish because God sent it 
onto my hook. I, I believe that God is active within nature. Peter is going beyond that and saying not only is God active within nature, God is active over against nature. God is forcing nature into a shape that it would never take on its own. The order of nature has been transcended in the resurrection of the Son of God. Him God raised up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that Jesus should be held by it. It was metaphysically necessary that Christ rise from the dead. In what sense was it impossible that he be held by death? Well, simply this, the wages of sin is death. Jesus was perfect. Death appears to us as immoral, unjust, random, and unfair. How could that little one be struck down? How could so-and-so die in the prime of her life? How could, how could, how could? Death is not immoral or unjust, though. If we understood the depths of our own degradation, if we understood our own evil, we would see that every death is a deserved death. Not deserved at the hands of men, but deserved at the justice of God. Death is perfectly right. Death will never take somebody who doesn't deserve to die. Or if it does, as it did in the case of Jesus, it will not hold that person. It's a paradigm shift for us to think of death as morally upright totally scrupulously fair. But it is. That's why it couldn't hold Jesus. In order to buttress what he's saying, Peter brings forward his text, which is Psalm 16, 8-11. David speaks about seeing the Lord, how the Lord is at his right hand, his heart was glad. And the key point Peter wants to draw is verse 27a, you will not leave my soul in Hades. What is Hades? Hades is the place of the dead. In Greek mythology corresponding to Sheol, the place of the dead. In Hebrew mythology, we would call it essentially the grave. It's not a comment on the afterlife. It's not saying what the soul is experiencing. It's saying that the person is in the state that we call death. And Jesus will not stay there. You will not leave my soul in Hades. David's flesh would be kept from decay, the psalm seems to say. You will not let your Holy One see corruption. So Peter quotes this psalm, and he says, King David says, you won't let my flesh rot. Folks, I have bad news for you. David's flesh rotted. We can go over across town and find his tomb. It's still there. And you can find his bones inside and all the flesh will be rotted off then. And what is Peter trying to say? Is he trying to challenge the veracity of Scripture? Psalm 16 is not true. David didn't know what he was talking about. No, he's trying to change people's paradigm of what the truth of Scripture is. Psalm 16 is true because Jesus would be resurrected first. 
It's true, first of all, of Jesus, and then secondarily true of its human author, David. David knew that he would rise again because he saw the resurrection of Christ. Right, Verse 31, Peter says, David was a prophet. He knew more than he wrote. He wrote about its application to him. I won't rot in the grave. But he knew that to get there, it would have to be true of his descendant Jesus first. Peter's sermon is complicated. And it seems incredibly complicated because Luke has condensed it so much. Isn't it fascinating? The only part of this sermon that Luke has not condensed is the texts. A good lesson for us. We'll talk in next week about the homiletical implications of this sermon. What can we learn about good preaching by how Peter preached, and by how Luke condensed this. But Luke took out all the connected material, all the long-winded explanations, all the comparisons, everything that makes the sermon go down easily. And what we have here on these pages is essentially an outline of the message that Peter preached. So how does Peter's argument go? Well, he brings forward one text, Psalm 16. David said, I won't decay, I'll rise again. David was talking about his descendant, Jesus of Nazareth. Now, boom, Peter brings forward another text, Psalm 132. And that is in verse 30. Therefore, being a prophet, knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Messiah to sit on his throne. Where is that? That's in Psalm 132. I have sworn to David, I will not lie. Of the fruit of your body, I will raise up one to sit on your throne. Peter quotes that text and says, again, this promise was kept not in the first instance to David, but to his son, primarily to the son of David, secondarily to David. That's the Christian message. Throughout this chapter, throughout the New Testament, the message is primarily to Jesus, secondarily to us. The primary resurrection is Christ's. We'll be raised because he was. The primary destination of the promises is Christ. We receive God's promises because he did. The primary is always Jesus. The message is first about him and then secondarily about us as his people in him. That's why the New Testament is all about what we have in Christ. Outside of Christ, we have none of it. In him, we have it all. Peter says, David said, I will rise again. What he meant was, Jesus will rise again, and therefore I will rise again. David said, wow, God has promised me a descendant on my throne. That's the Messiah. He'll sit on my throne. So God had promised David a descendant, sworn with an oath that of the fruit of his body he would raise up the Messiah to sit on his throne. 
the promises of Psalms 16 and 132 would be kept to this descendant. Peter doesn't say this in so many words, but clearly that's one of the premises he's working from in this sermon. God made promises to David. But those promises would be kept first and foremost to Jesus. And in Jesus, then, to David. Therefore, Peter says, very explicitly, David was speaking of Christ. Verse 31, He foreseeing this spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Key point in the New Testament. We've talked about how this point is the very area which the New Testament is most under attack in our day. Did David speak about the resurrection of Christ or not? When we read Psalm 16 earlier, did you listen to that and say, this is about Jesus? Peter is saying, you should have. David was a prophet and knew what would happen. The historical critical method comes along and says, David knew about Jesus. Uh huh, that's as plausible as saying that King Alfred knows about Boris Johnson. Doesn't work, my friend. Nobody can look a thousand years into the future. What's our response? No, the Bible is frankly supernatural. The Holy Spirit did know about Jesus a thousand years before Jesus lived. And he inspired David to write Psalm 16 about Jesus. So therefore, David was speaking of Christ in any way, Peter says, verse 32, God has in fact kept these promises to Jesus. This Jesus God has raised up of which we are all witnesses. Notice then how the New Testament brings the prophetic and the apostolic together and meshes them perfectly. Peter says, here's the prophetic. David was a prophet. He foresaw Jesus. Now here's me. I'm an apostle. I saw the resurrection. When I merge what I saw, my eyewitness testimony of the resurrection, with Scripture's testimony of God's promise to David of resurrection... That's how I know that Jesus is the Messiah. That's how I know that the Spirit came from Jesus. Jesus, he says to the crowd, poured out what you see in here. Jesus came, he lived, he died, he rose. He went back to the Father's right hand and the Father gave him the Spirit and Jesus poured out the Spirit and you are here because you heard the noise of that relevance he brings it back to the audience he takes them to the scripture and then says here's how this relates to you the Old Testament is relevant to you because Jesus is active right in front of your face that was the message to the Pentecost crowd and that's still the message to us why do we care what some ancient Near Eastern shepherd wrote in a book 3,000 years ago? We care because the characters, characters he wrote about are still at work in our life, in our town, in our day.
the God that David knew, the Christ that David foresaw, are the God and Christ who are still active in Gillette in the month of March 2021. That's why the Old Testament is relevant to us. And the Bible, Peter says, is about not primarily ancient Near Eastern shepherds, but about Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God. That's why we care. That's why we listen. That's why this is important to us. Well, Peter then moves forward to the ascension. David didn't ascend into heaven, verse 34. No, David went into the ground. When his life was over, he died, he was buried. I'm sure Solomon gave him a great funeral, and that was that. We move on. But David said about his descendant, his Lord, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Peter quotes Psalm 110, in which David talks about a descendant of his who does go up to heaven and sit at the right hand of God. Peter says, see, ascension, right there in Psalm 110, going up and sitting at the Father's right hand. God exalted Jesus to his right hand. God gave Jesus the Spirit. David's Lord ascended. And Jesus' ascension proves his status. Any of you been invited to sit at the right hand of God? Any of you even been invited to sit at the right hand of the mayor? You want to talk status. Most of us don't even have status right here in little old Gillette. But Jesus' status is such that he sits at the right hand of God, and therefore, Peter says, that proves that he is Lord and Christ. He is Lord. He rules you. He has the right to say how you live. He is Christ. He is the anointed one set apart by God to save the world. So that's Peter's status. God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And that's his last word. He goes and sits down. Or at least... He makes it clear that the message has come to an end, right? Many speakers today end their talk by saying, thank you. He stops with, you crucified him. Know Jesus' status, he's Lord, he's Christ. Know your guilt, you crucified him. This is effective, bold, Preaching. Peter is not about to let them off the hook at the end of the message. But it's okay because he's very forgiving. Instead, that's where it ends. You crucified him. Now, Peter stayed and talked to people afterwards, and that's what the next section is, how we ought to respond to the gospel. But this whirlwind tour of Scripture... And again, it probably took a lot more than half an hour to preach this sermon. I would guess closer to four hours, which it says 
Verse 40, with many other words, he testified and exhorted them. Peter explained in detail the connection between the life of Christ and the prophecies in the Psalms. So that's our application. We'll leave it at that. Know that Jesus is Lord in Christ. And know your guilt. You see, all too often in the history of the church, it's been convenient to accuse others. Oh, the Jews, the Romans, they killed Christ. Peter shows us a better way. Yes, he's speaking to Jews and Romans, primarily Jews. But good preaching is never to the crowd about how some other group is rotten. Peter preaches to his audience that they're rotten. You killed Jesus. Right, and that's the testimony of the rest of the New Testament. If you are a believer in Jesus today, then his death is your fault. That is, he had to die to pay the penalty for your sins. The people most responsible for the death of Christ are not non-believers, but believers. If all the world was non-believers, he wouldn't have had to die. So that's the message for us. Know his status. He's Lord in Christ. Know that the best, the greatest, the only man in history thoroughly endorsed by God, raised from the dead by God, we killed him. Let's pray. Father, we crucified your son. Had it not been for us, he never would have needed to go up on that cross. Lord, take away our air of self-righteousness are more than sneaking suspicion that the fact that we're Christians makes us substantially better than evil empires and Jews and whatever other villains we want to shove in there. Father, help us to understand the teaching of your word. Yes, that David saw Christ coming. Yes, that David knew the resurrection of Christ but also that it was church people who killed him. Church people who should have known better. Lord, forgive us for the death of your Son. Thank you that it is precisely through the death of your Son that you can forgive us for having caused his death. Help us to know his status as Lord and Christ and help us to know our guilt this week, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.